Previously on the Nature of My Game podcast. Really wanted to do some research on um, hunt electrodynamics and kind of what happened that led up to the explosion. Reports from the time, witnesses say that the the plant uh, seemed to fold in on itself as the earth swallowed it whole. Yeah, something weird's going on. We, we, may, we may never come out. The ground is all dirt, and it's all very carefully raked. That's weird, but right. What have you been up to, Clifford? Kind of over the last decade of his life, Arthur Hunt vaguely referred to the work that he was doing on a device that he always said would change the face of the earth. The company kind of becoming this primary supplier for the Air Force kind of sticks out to him a bit, like that there's some sort of like military technology tie in there. And inside there is a, a cube of, it looks gold to you. I'll leave the, the cube in the bag and place it down and then go to examine the jar. Floating in the liquid is a huge dragonfly, maybe 30 inches from tip to tail. The problem with this, of course, is that the Meganura dragonfly lived 300 million years ago, but this sample looks as fresh as if it were killed yesterday. Hellbend, California. August 4th, 1952. The sun shone brightly in Montgomery Green's eyes as he drove his pickup truck through the streets of Hellbend, heading back out to the hunt plant. It was around lunchtime, and he considered for a moment stopping back home to grab a bite to eat, but Mr. Hunt would want his meal just on time, and anyways, he didn't want to get into another argument with his wife. Montgomery made this drive every day, so he barely paid attention to where he was going or what he was doing. His mind was back on this morning. The thing that frustrated him most was that his wife had been right, as she almost always was. That made two people in his life that were almost always right, his wife and Mr. Hunt, which meant that Montgomery was usually wrong. Oh well, that was the way things were. He'd just have to talk to Mr. Hunt about it. Montgomery's son, William, was turning ten years old soon, and he really needed his father to be around more. That's what his wife had told him this morning, and he knew that he had to do something about it. It was his responsibility as a father. He also knew that Mr. Hunt wasn't going to be happy about it. He knew that he'd go in, he'd tell his boss that he needed to spend more hours at home, which, of course, meant fewer hours at the plant, and that he'd get berated by the man for abandoning him, especially since he was so close to a breakthrough on his project, the one he wouldn't stop going on and on about, the one that would change the face of the earth. It wasn't that Montgomery doubted Mr. Hunt for a second. He had learned that whatever Mr. Hunt said should be believed. But Montgomery didn't know what possible role he played in the process. Mr. Hunt only tolerated him. Sure, that was more than could be said about most of the people who worked for Hunt Electrodynamics, but still. All Montgomery did was bring him books, wash his vegetables, simple tasks that anyone could do. But somehow, Mr. Hunt always knew when Montgomery wasn't the one to do them, and that always made him mad. But Mr. Hunt hadn't been mad this morning, and that was the one thing that gave Montgomery hope. Mr. Hunt rarely showed any emotion at all, other than maybe anger, but today he had seemed excited, almost giddy, if that was possible. I'm so close, Montgomery. So close, he had said. So maybe he'd be in a good enough mood when Montgomery got back that he'd be willing to discuss his hours. Maybe. 
Montgomery had been so wrapped up by these thoughts that he had already reached the outskirts of the plant and had started to turn down the drive through the fence when he heard it. A loud crunch, perhaps the loudest sound Montgomery had ever heard. He looked up and saw something that he could barely comprehend. For a moment, it looked as though two giant, invisible hands had grabbed the sides of the hunt plant and pulled it neatly in two. The massive building had split cleanly in the middle, and looking directly along the fissure, Montgomery could see past the plant to the other side, out into the desert. The sight lasted only for a moment, though, before both sides started to fall back together, and the entire plant started to crash down on top of itself. Montgomery considered for a moment continuing to drive forward, but no, there was nothing he could do. So we're a few episodes into this uh, into this scenario. Um, I feel like you all have gotten some you've got some clues, right? You don't have all the clues, but you've you've started to get some clues. I want to hear what your craziest theory about what's going on here is. Just the, the what is the craziest thing you can come up with based on the clues that you have so far? I'll be it'll be amazing if any of you come up with with something close to what's real. So I actually have one because I just read a book set in California in this area around the gold rush loosely. It's called Gold Diggers. It's very good. And people um, discovered an alchemical process where you can melt down gold and drink it and then have like the owner's ambition. So I feel like this gold in some way definitely has like ancient magical properties. Cool. I like it. I'll say that uh, somewhere around like the hunt plant or or maybe even like near Clifford's place, there's some sort of like time loop uh, or some like interdimensional thing that uh, was one, the reason for the explosion of the plant how it like you know fell in on itself it didn't really explode it just went to another time period or dimension or whatever and um and since we got a 300 300 million year old dragonfly uh that came back one time when they were in the time loop also some dinosaurs came back and wrecked (laughs) up these uh these two people and these like rage animal like killings that should be human are really just like T-Rexes and, uh, you know, Velociraptors or whatever. Fantastic. I Fantastic. love that. Um, I, yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna say time machine. Uh, damn. So, um, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna pivot and I'm just gonna say, uh, the most outlandish thing I can think of, which is Bigfoot. <laughs> just, just Bigfoot just has Bigfoot. made his way to, to, to Death Valley. And he's, and he's radioactive. <laughs> 
He would be so hot. <laughs> oh, <laughs> right. He's, it's like 145 degrees. He's also doing some gold smuggling. I also feel that aliens could be afoot. You know, it's like we are in the area. They would also know the future, the radioactivity. Like, I don't know. It's always, it it's always aliens. aliens in some way. Yeah, like when the rake, I was like, oh, crop circle. <laughs> but in the ground. I like that too. I mean, so... With Delta Green, alien is a very loose term, right? Like, <laughs> aliens could be lots and lots of different things, but... I've never experienced uh, Delta Green aliens. That's true, that's true. And actually, it's... A lot of their... Um, a lot of Delta Green's recent activity, like, with, you know, like, in the 90s, had a lot to do with um, with aliens. The, the, the history of Delta mm-hmm. Green from the role-playing game is super, super interesting and very detailed and is fun to read as a, as a, as a future thing that you could do. I don't like sharing all of it with people who are, you know, primary play- primarily players because, like, it's, I don't know, it's something that your characters can kind of learn as they go along, too, because Delta Green is super um, secretive about all this stuff, so, like, you can get little hints of it as you're on operations, but it is it is very cool and very detailed and, and all very well thought out and tied into the real world and, like, things that happen in the real world. Because Delta Green in the system has been around since the late 20s. And so it's it's gone through lots of different phases. And it makes sense that it would be very secretive because I feel like anyone who continues to play just gets like more and more paranoid and like um, 100%, scared 100%. of everything. I'm just imagining like a 1920s bootlegger character in Delta Green. He's just like, nah, see, we're, we're trying to <laughs> like, you know, trying to see what's going on here, sir. <laughs> I think we probably need more accents from Bex. <laughs> I do think we need more accents from Bex. I so so just a little more history. Just indulge me here for another minute of a little role-playing game history. So, um, Delta Green was originally created as a source book for Call of Cthulhu, um, a source book set in the 1990s, because the people who created Delta Green, and if any of you ever listen to this episode, forgive me for all of the things that I get wrong here, but they they were a little confused. Um, and wanted to try to solve the problem of why are these people in Call of Cthulhu who are not professionals really in any way, they're not law enforcement, they're not military, they're not, they're not government, anything like that. Why do they keep putting themselves at just terrible peril, right? Like it's so much risk. Like why do they continue to do these investigations? Like a normal person would just run away. And so they created this, they created this like, campaign setting for lack of a better term where this the reason that people do this is because they've been recruited into this organization that asks them to sacrifice themselves to do it but anyways call of cthulhu the original game is set in the 1920s and so what they did was they tied some of the like very basic cthulhu mythos into the origins of delta green and so you can play like call of cthulhu scenarios that are the founding of Delta Green, right? Or, or or are the kind of inciting incidents that caused the founding of Delta Green, and then you can kind of play through the ages, which I think would be a really cool way to do a campaign. That is cool. If this is a time machine, maybe we can do that and play through the ages. If this is a time machine, it seems to be keyed to a time a lot farther <laughs> back than, ni- than 1929. It's true. Prehistoric Delta Green. Now that would be wild. Um, okay, so... Uh, picking things back up, agents uh, Portia Marks and Sunny Lau were exploring 
Clifford Potter's home. Clifford Potter was the first of the two victims in Hellbend, California, whose deaths you were investigating. And uh, after searching through his house, you found a notebook and some maps and some cassette tapes. You went out back to look inside the somewhat freshly dug root cellar that he had in his backyard. You went in, uh, you found that there wasn't much in there. It was a, a dirt floor um, that was very nicely and well raked, um, plus a rake and a shovel. After some more searching around, you decided to dig in the center of the root cellar where some footprints had led. And you found two things um, that were both pretty shocking, though the second one I think is more shocking than the first. You found a, uh, a two inch by two inch by two inch or so cube of gold that had some strange symbols on the side. You know, you estimate it to be worth somewhere in the range of two to three hundred thousand dollars. So a, a, a very significant chunk of gold. But then in a large glass jar that was filled with uh, a formaldehyde-like preservative substance, you found a 29-inch long dragonfly that uh, had died, uh, though it looked like it had died very recently. And both of you were able to recognize it based on your anthropological and archaeological experience as a Meganaura dragonfly, which is, it's thought to be the largest insect to have ever existed. Uh, but the main problem and the thing that is shocking you most is that the Meganaura dragonfly lived in the Carboniferous period, which was uh, approximately 300 million years ago though it looks as if it was killed yesterday. And so this realization for both of you is so shocking uh, that I need you both to roll our first sanity tests of, uh, of this adventure. And so let's see what we got here. Um, oh, a critical success for, for Sunny and a regular success for Portia. Um, so Sunny, you actually, because of the critical success, you take no sanity damage. So you've seen some strange things in your life. Um, this was one of them, but somehow you're able to steal yourself. What do you think is going through Sonny's head right now? I mean, I think I think you just said it there. I think uh, Sonny has, has seen some things um, in his encounters with the, uh, the supernatural, the, the unexplainable, maybe some... Uh, maybe some things that didn't look too differently than this uh, Mega Nara Dragonfly. Um, so this is the sort of thing maybe that he was uh, expecting to to find on a Delta Green mission, or at least has had some experience with. But I think in terms of you know how this relates to what's going on right now, uh, I have absolutely no idea. I would not say that a large glass jar with a you know 300 million year old dragonfly and a gold cube sort of go together uh, in my thought process. Gotcha. And so, Portia, because you succeeded but did not critically succeed, you take one point of sanity damage. And I went actually, because of your um, because of your character and some background choices that you made, I need you to make me another sanity check. Okay. All right. So you, you see this thing and, you know, you, you immediately feel this, like, sinking in your stomach. Because, you know, maybe unlike uh, Sunny, the sight of the unnatural for you, even though it's, even though it, it was kind of what you were expecting or, you know, knew that, it, that you might encounter it, 
I think for you, it holds some some really kind of deep-seated negative connotations. Um, and so you feel this like sinking feeling in your stomach that you have felt before when encountering things like this. Uh, but for the most part, you're able to fight off any of the adverse effects of that. Yeah, what do you think's going through her head? I mean, I think up until this moment, things had been not quite fun isn't the right word, but like that sort of jittery feeling of like, oh, we're about to find something, like be successful in a mission. And that feeling is like gone now. It doesn't, I'm not like curious about what's happening anymore in that same way. Um, and I think like the, the physical nature of it, like the idea that this is something creepy that you can actually like hold in your hands and is tangible is uh, sort of what's really unsettling. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, so, okay, so you you two have just found these two things. Um, you know, uh, you dig around a little bit more sunny in the dirt in that area, um, and you don't see anything else. Um, so it seems like potentially these are the two things that had been buried here. Yeah, uh, I, I don't think these are uh, two things that we can just uh, leave here. Should definitely take them. Is my thought. I'm thinking that these are definitely things that we need to do a bit more research on maybe uh get ben involved with yeah so so yeah i think we're uh again retracing our the, the steps that are there putting the the rake and shovel back maybe maybe covering up the the hole that we dug the things out of with the the dirt that was there mm-hmm. trying to at least make it look like no one was there doubtful that maybe anyone else is coming through here but just in case and and yeah, I think we're trying to get out of here. I think that is a good plan. Maybe even like we do the rakes, like we do the same rake pattern and just get out of there. Yeah, so you're able to to make things look as much like it had looked before as you can, um, and you head up out of the cellar. Both of you make me an alertness test. I'm alert. All right, so. Um, so as you are coming out of the root cellar, um, it's it's well into dusk at this point. Um, the sun is for sure setting. It's kind of getting darker out there. And remember that um, Clifford Potter's house is a little bit set away from town, right? You know, there, there aren't any other homes kind of, you know, within at least a quarter of a mile or so. Um, and so as you're coming out, two things happen at the same time. Agent Lau, your cell phone buzzes and you uh you look down and you you're not you don't recognize the number but you think uh, based on the location that it is potentially it's it's from bakersfield so you think it might be um special agent slotkin calling to check in and and get a get a status report for the day as that's happening and you look down Portia, you're just kind of i don't know scanning the horizon for a second you're just kind of like looking around getting a getting a sense of your surroundings and you think you see off in the distance something moving. You, it's it's very quick. You you don't get a good good look at it, but it seemed like something off into the distance was moving. And you think it was big, whatever it was. But then it, it disappears from view, and um, you can't you can't you can't spot where even you thought you saw it. Like you don't know what it, like if it was hiding behind something. You're almost not even sure that you saw something. But like for a second, you saw movement, you kind of looked up, you saw what you thought was like something large moving through the desert, and then it was gone. 
Okay, so like on the ground, not in the sky or anything, but something on the ground a distance away. Yeah, I mean, could have been a big animal, could have been a car. Um, not sure why it would have necessarily disappeared, but it was just something kind of large moving off into the distance. Mm. Dinosaur. No. Okay. Do you mention it to, uh, well, I guess the, I guess his phone is ringing. So, um, Sonny, do you answer? Yeah, I think, uh, I think I want to go to the car first and, and secure the, the items that we've taken with us. So, um, putting those things, uh, in the car and then, uh, and then picking up the phone. Yeah, I, I'm not going to mention the thing I saw until after the phone call is over, if at all. Sounds good. Okay, so um, so you, you pick up the phone, and you hear a voice say, Wow, this is Slotkin, calling for a, for a status report. How are things going? I am going to point to the things and be like, like, put, you know, like a sign in front of my hand, like, don't tell him about those. Like, try to signal to him not to tell about those two things. Right, I think that's going through my head as well. That we don't want to, uh, we don't want to alarm the Bakersfield office of any anything uh, unnatural or abnormal like this. I think I'm also questioning whether or not. Uh, I guess this is this is an unknown number. Granted, it is a burner phone, but is there any reason I should be suspicious that it's not Slotkin, or is there a way to confirm who it is? Is that something not I don't need to worry about? Yeah, so this is this is not on the burner since the, the burner was a was a delta green thing. This is on your regular cell phone, but you know you would you don't think you would want to share anything super classified on this phone call, but like just kind of giving an update of where things stand, you think is fine, and you don't have any reason to believe that it's not him. It sounds like him. Okay, good. Then yeah, I think I, I when uh, Agent Marks you know points at the items and, and gives me the you know. No signal. I nod my head to, to her. Tell Agent Slotkin, you know, yeah, that it's been a pretty uneventful day. Um, we were able to to meet up with the the, the sheriffs in Independence, uh, Sheriff Mann and, and Sheriff, Deputy Sheriff Andrazi. Ask them some questions, get a, a rundown of the reports and investigations that they've had so far, and able to meet with the the coroner's coroner as well to. Uh, to take a look at the uh, the medical uh, autopsy reports uh, and, and and see the, the pictures from the uh, of the of the victims, um, but other than that, haven't been able to to get any leads quite yet, um, and are hoping that uh, after maybe a couple more another day or so out here that we can start uh, getting somewhere in the investigation. What do you think? Do you uh, do you think we have a serial killer on our hands? Serial killer. Um, I think that's it's a bit early to jump to those conclusions. I would say we haven't been able to rule out any sort of uh, you know animal attacks uh, or any sort of uh, other uh, possibilities. There hasn't been anything leading us to any specific suspects, any any people that the uh, victims knew themselves uh, quite yet. So so not sure. But I think it's a bit bit soon to be jumping to, to serial killer. All right. Sounds good. Uh, I'll check in again tomorrow. Uh, thanks for your work. Talk, talk tomorrow. Of course. Thank you. Well handled, Agent Lau. All right. So the two of you load everything up into the into the SUV. And are you driving? You're driving to Furnace Creek, uh, to, to Furnace Creek Ranch to meet up with um, with Ben? I think so. Yeah, I think that's uh, hopefully our, our last and final stop. For, the for real. All right. 
Uh, so you do arrive back at Furnace Creek Ranch. Um, you can both get yourself uh, rooms at the, the motel. What do you want to do with the stuff? And where are you meeting with Ben? I don't think we can leave uh, the stuff in the car. I, I would say that I'm more than happy to, to bring it in into my room uh, if Agent Marks uh, doesn't want to. And I think, uh, I imagine at the uh, Furnace Creek, uh, is hotel, motel, whatever, uh, Holiday Inn, whatever this is, uh, that there maybe isn't a, a conference room of some sort, so we may have to be meeting in one of our, our bedrooms. I don't know, uh, Agent Marks, do you feel do you feel like we can we can show Ben this stuff right away? Do we need to be keeping it close to our chest for any reason? I don't think so, but I, I think we should show him I think we should meet in someone's room rather than somewhere in public. Um, maybe sure. even like bring it in in suitcases so it looks normal. And yeah, if you want to keep it in your room, I am more than fine with that. Yeah, that's not a bad bad idea. Maybe some some duffel bags or suitcases or something. And then yeah, I say we should should uh, meet back in, in my room then if we're going to keep the items there. I think I'm going to go like to my room, get that I'll collect myself a little bit before meeting up. Sounds good. So, um, you know, the, the three of you all get situated. Um, are you meeting in Agent Lau's room where all the stuff is? Yeah. Cool. All right. So, you know, maybe 30 minutes, 45 minutes, whatever later, um, the three of you meet in Agent Lau's room. Um, and I assume, you know, that you, the two of you kind of debrief Ben on what you found both in the house and in the root cellar and that Ben kind of gives a rundown of all the information that he learned about Hunt Electronics slash Hunt Electrodynamics. So we don't have to, you know, you don't have to, to say all those things out, but kind of where do you think the conversation and the planning goes from there? Um, I, I would, I would think maybe it's necessary to, to do some more research into, into the Meganora Dragonfly depending on what our anthropological, how far that knowledge extends. But I do think, I, I would imagine, Ben, you can jump in if you'd like. It, the, I imagine the the Monty tapes that we found are probably of, of high interest to you. Maybe you want to listen to those before the interview tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely do. Um, it sounds like uh, you guys grabbed a bunch of the tapes and... Um, in the the boombox, so you know we have uh, something to play the tapes on. I think that's um, that's probably a logical place to start. I'd be interested to look through the notepad and the books a little bit more. Um, also, maybe a little bit of research on like gold and radioactivity. If there, I don't know if it does anything. Sure. Yeah, that's no problem. I guess I don't know if we have to necessarily, you know, split up here. But, uh, you know, we can have the, the tapes playing maybe while uh, Agent Marks is going through the notepad and stuff like that. Be listening to the tapes together, sort of. Get some room service? Dinner time? <laughs> Agent's still gotta eat, yeah. It's a retiree resort, so the, the room service is actually pretty good because, you know, they would, they would complain otherwise. Uh, so you order some room service, you, uh, you know, you, you make yourselves comfortable in, in the best way that you can. It sounds like, uh, Portia, you're listening, but also kind of doing some research on, you know, you're kind of leafing through the notebook um, and doing some research on gold and radi- and its radioactive properties, if any. Sounds like maybe Agent Lau is doing a little more research on the Meganura dragonfly while listening. 
And Ben, it seems like, you know, because you're doing the interviewing tomorrow, you might be focusing a little bit more specifically on the tapes as, um, as you're, you know, to kind of prepare for your interview tomorrow. I'm taking notes. Gotcha. Okay. So yeah, so you, there's a bunch of these tapes. There's like more than 20 of these tapes. And so, you know, you, do you start with the first one? Do you start with in the middle at the end? I think the I think the first one makes sense. I, I remember you saying they're numbered like one through thirty something. Yeah, yeah. So the first couple that you pop in, you know, you hear two voices. You hear someone. You know, based on the context, one voice sounds like a very old man. Um, you think that's probably Montgomery Green. Uh, other voice you would think is Clifford Clifford Potter, um, based on what you know about these tapes. And Clifford is, you know, interviewing Montgomery Green about Arthur Hunt um, and Hunt Electrodynamics. The first couple of tapes are really mostly information that you know, other than the fact that Montgomery Green, uh, when he, after he left the military after World War II, answered a want ad asking for an assistant. Uh, it was posted in the newspaper near where he, he grew up and where he had returned home after the war. And it said something like, Servant wanted, accustomed to extreme conditions, unerringly efficient and efficacious, comfortable in tropical climes, asks no questions, expects no untoward considerations, high pay. And, you know, Montgomery thought after uh, spending a lot of time in the South Pacific, and being in the military and being used to, you know, not expecting much in terms of untoward considerations, felt like he was a good fit for the role, um, and so reached out and was hired by Arthur Hunt and worked for him as basically a personal assistant until Hunt died in the explosion in 1952. But other than that, the tapes primarily kind of give you some of the background information that you, specifically Ben, has already gathered about Arthur Hunt, about Hunt Electrodynamics, all of those things. While that's happening, Portia, you are kind of um, leafing through uh, the notebook. It is, as you suspected, mostly pretty unrecognizable figures. Maybe their measurements, you're not really sure. You do find a couple of phrases that stand out to you. One says, uh, machine parts, colon, gold, silver. Um, and one says, radioactive, question mark. You also do a little bit of research on uh, the radioactive properties of gold. And science says that no gold found in nature is radioactive. Only man-made radio, uh, radioisotopes of gold uh, retain radioactivity. Some are used in microscopic amounts to destroy tumors. And most of the half-lives for any of those um, man-made radioactive uh, pieces of gold are only like a few days. So, you know, kind of a, a longer-lasting radioactive gold would be something unknown to man. And, you know, basically your research confirms that if this gold is at all radioactive, Gold of this size that is that it has been radioactive for an you know an extended period of time does not make any sense. This is a science question. So after the half life, it it's just no longer radioactive, or it like combusts or what? I don't know. What, it, then it just turns I back. Think the to, radioactivity just wears out. Wears out. Okay. 
All right, so um, you continue to listen through the tapes. You know, it's been, you know, the, the tapes are actually pretty long, you know, 30 to 45 minute long interviews. And so, you know, after two tapes, it's been an hour and a half. You continue listening. And on the third tape, you start to, you hear one conversation that um, has information that you find interesting and that you didn't know before. You know, a lot of the conversation, it's it's Clifford trying to get things out of Montgomery Green. It's not that Montgomery Green is withholding or anything like that. He's just a really old man who only remembers so much. Um, and so is kind of trying to recall things. But um, you hear one section of the third tape where Montgomery Green says, we, uh, we talking about Hunt again? And Clifford Potter says, yeah, Monty, if that's okay. Sure, why the hell not? He said people would talk about him someday. Did he? Sure, said he was going to change the face of the earth with what he was working on down there at the plant. And then Clifford says something unintelligible, and Monty says, you know what? I believed him. And you kind of, you, you listen a little bit more and there's not much else on that tape that's that's particularly relevant or interesting. And so now at this point, it's probably 10 o'clock at night. Do you, how long do you think you'll want to continue to listen through these tapes? You know, you've made it through like three tapes in, you know, an hour and a half, almost two hours. I think we probably just want to maybe pop in a couple of random ones and um, just kind of like fast forward a little bit and just see if there's anything um you know, important that kind of, that uh, that catches our ear. Uh, obviously, we can't we can't make it through all the tapes in one night. Sounds good. So you kind of start popping in some random ones just to try to get a sense of anything that you can get. And you do you you know over the course of the next maybe two hours. So you know up until around midnight, you you do hear a couple other you know interesting snippets as you're listening through. At one point, Clifford says, "So you don't think English was his main language?" I don't know. He looked white. He looked like he was from Europe or something. He seemed normal, but once or twice I heard him talk in this language. Can you describe it? Well, it sounded like some sort of South Seas lingo, like something from New Guinea or something. I heard some of those in the Corps, you understand. Did he know you overheard him? Once. Did he ever say anything to you about it? Yeah, he said to forget it. He said he could speak twelve languages, that it was a gift. He could write in them, too. And so you find that, you know, somewhat interesting. And then you also hear um, in one of the one of the later tapes, Clifford says, So he didn't like blood? You said something about that earlier. Yes, I, I cut myself once while preparing his lunch. And when I walked into the into the tub, uh, that's what Hunt called his office. He got up and started screaming at me. He was really, really mad, like really P.O. He stood away from me like I like it was catching. What was he yelling? <laughs> For me to get out, to come back later, that he wasn't hungry, that my blood made him sick. So you were bleeding a lot. That's the thing, I didn't bleed hardly at all, and just on a finger. The finger was wrapped in gauze. So he saw the bandage. Nah, I had my other hand with the cut on the door. He couldn't see it. So how did he know? <laughs> I think he smelt it. Ew, that's creepy. And so, yeah, are any of you, like, you know, you're, you're, you're only picking up you know, some things that are interesting over the course of a couple hours, but what's going through your heads? Are you talking about any of this? So, the gold and the tropical climate mentioned in Death Valley are making, made me, like, research a little, like, think about the past of Death Valley, and I guess it's a valley because it used to have water, so I'm just curious about that. 
like I'd want to do some more research on like the geology and like water in this place and the map with the pool. Uh, that's kind of what I might I might bring up those thoughts. I think uh, the bit about being able to smell the blood, uh, you know, uh, all of our eyebrows kind of raise a very bizarre thing to hear. I think maybe to just the we've heard now a couple times the this sort of line of Hunt wanting to uh, change the face of the earth. Uh, I think we've heard that a couple times now. So I think just at least starting to brainstorm maybe based on what we know about what kind of things they were working on there. You know, what possibly Hunt could be talking about here. Uh, what types of technology he was getting towards. Yeah, I mean, and you know from what you learned about Hunt and electrodynamics up to this point is that, you know, it started out mostly as um, radio transmitters, um, you know, as the radio was becoming important. And then they kind of shifted to shifted to household appliances. And that, you know, this 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 phrase that he wanted that he was working on a device to change the face of the earth was something that he said kind of over the last decade of his life, but never released anything because he died. <laughs> I keep thinking about the question in the beginning of like, what's the craziest thing? And it's like, time travel. <laughs> it's not so crazy anymore. So, um, you know, it's getting to be about midnight. Um, you all decide that you're, you're going to return to your respective rooms for the night and, and get up the next morning. As you're all kind of, you know, after you all say goodbye to each other um, and Ben and Portia, you know, head to their rooms, all three of you, you know, you hadn't really noticed it before because you, you know, were so interested in the research you were doing. You were so interested in what was on the tapes. But all three of you start to feel like a real sense of malaise. And not that, you know, you're all tired. It's been a long day. But, like, you feel weak almost like you're like 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 the flu is coming on so why don't you all make me uh, an intelligence check so is this is this a times five yeah yep oh all right so portia fails her intelligence test but i think ben and sunny kind of realize at around the same time sunny is kind of getting ready or you know getting ready for bed in his room and uh, ben is walking back to his room and you both kind of come to the realization that, you know, based on the research you've been doing and how you're feeling and what you know, that you think that you are probably suffering from low-grade radiation poisoning. All three of us? Well, you don't realize it, but yes, all three okay. of you. Um, so you're, you're all, all three of you, your, your constitution score is going to go down by two. So go ahead and make that change on your character sheet. Um, but Sunny and Ben, you've come to this realization. What do you do? This is Nick chiming in here, wishing he knew anything about radiation. I was gonna say I would, I would probably, I would probably, uh, yeah, try to try to do, either go to Google or, or WebMD and uh, and try to see, you know, what I can learn about radiation poisoning. Gotcha. So just kind of like as you're walking, you just like start to research it a little bit. Yeah. I, I wonder, um, maybe as much as I don't want the uh, the items. Out of our, uh, out of our maybe line of sight or out of our, you know, immediacy, that maybe putting them in the back in the car, uh, at least certainly away from me where I'm sleeping, 
uh, might be uh, a necessary thing to do. Gotcha. Yeah, so um, with your successful intelligence check to kind of correctly identify what's going on here and with a little bit of research from either of you, you think that, it, you know, if this is radiation poisoning, you think that it is, you know, based on the way it's affecting you, it's probably not um, permanent and it's not too terribly serious. Um, you will probably feel a little bit like you have the flu for a little while. But you also think, and I think this is for Agent Lau specifically, if you were to put the whatever the radioactive thing is in one of those lead-lined gloves and, like, kind of seal it off, that that should protect people around from the radiation. Uh, thank you for that. Then, yeah, I would I would go then and find the um, those red dirt-covered gloves that we were using earlier. Obviously, the jar is not going to fit in. But I imagine that the, the Ziploc bag with the gold cube, you know, if it were folded up, that it could slide into the, the glove. I would maybe wrap that up and then still, again, take all these things out to the car. Sounds good. And then do any do the other of you communicate with, with the others? I, I'd probably go check on both of them. Check on uh, on Ben and, and Agent Marks and see if they're feeling similarly, uh, if it... If it has already affected them just since I was or still am the closest to the items. I think I'll be like surprised and maybe not let on but be touched that that was like a nice thing to come check on us with that. Um, maybe I, I didn't expect that. And then you know, I think then I'll just try to go to bed. She was really hoping to swim in the morning. Sleep it off. What about you, Ben? Um, yeah, it, it sounds like uh, we kind of came came to the conclusion around the same time so i'm just trying to you know kind of process what's going on um you know get, get back to my room and and you know hopefully have an early night and sleep it off gotcha yeah so you know you all are certainly still feeling the effects of uh of this for a little while i heard ben and portia both say that they you know kind of wanted to to head to bed pretty quickly is anyone doing anything uh, before you try to try to fall asleep, I would probably um, do like a quick phone call on my personal phone to my mom that I care for. You know, I'm in close touch with, and just you know, say that everything is fine and check in. Sounds good. Um, she uh, she's not having her best day, but she's not having her worst day. She knows it's you calling, and she says that your your father uh, called earlier and checked in on her. She she does ask. If you're coming to see her tomorrow? No, I'm not. But as soon as possible. Okay. I uh, would text my editor at the Times um, and kind of give him my uh, my plan for tomorrow, uh, which is to uh, to go and, and interview Montgomery Green. And I would send him the address um, that I'm going to be at just so he knows um, what's going on and... and a worst case scenario um, type thing, you know. At least he's he's got my location, and I don't really give any any more information than that. I don't I don't let on anything I've uh, I've discovered. I think I would probably uh, check my my personal phone as well, just to see if maybe if there's any other messages or, or texts from from Audrey. If there's not, I don't think I need to to reach out to her quite yet. Uh, you know, I told her that. I was going to be gone, so hopefully I would see her at the end of her trip. And then, you know, it's been a long day. Uh, I think 
despite the, the sanity checks going well and, and all that, that, uh, that I try and, uh, try my hardest to, to get a little, uh, meditation in before, uh, before falling asleep, whether or not that is successful, uh, who knows. All right. So, um, you're all able to sleep relatively well, but you all wake up and you're still, you're still not feeling great. Um, you know, you still feel a little worn down, a little sluggish and specifically, um, Sunny, you are woken up by a phone call. Uh, your, 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 your ringer starts going off and it wakes you up pretty early in the morning. Not feeling my best. Certainly was hoping for, you know, a little bit more sleep, but, uh, but I'll, I'll roll over in and pick up the phone. All right. Right before you hit, um, hit accept, you see that it's a, an Independence California phone number. And when you pick up, you hear the voice of uh, Sheriff Mann, who says, uh, is this, uh, this Special Agent Lau? Uh, yeah, yes, it is. Uh, who, am I, who am I speaking with? Yes, this is uh, Sheriff Mann. We met yesterday. Uh, Agent Lau, I, I just wanted to, to let you know that we... I believe that there's a reporter in town, and I think they're doing some digging around, and I'm I'm worried about what that can mean. Uh, we don't want this getting out, and uh, I'm afraid that it's a it's another situation that you may need to handle along with the investigation that you're doing. And that is where we are going to end our story today. God damn it, Ben! <laughs> Ooh, ben. <laughs> what are we doing? Ben got called to the principal's office. (laughs) This podcast was published by Arrangement with the Delta Green Partnership. The intellectual property known as Delta Green is a trademark and copyright owned by the Delta Green Partnership, who has licensed its use here. The scenario Future Perfect is copyright Dennis Detwiller, And the contents of this podcast are copyright Nature of My Game podcast, accepting those elements that are the components of the Delta Green intellectual property. Our intro music was composed and produced by Jean-Luc Bouchard. You can find more information about the Nature of My Game podcast at NOMG Podcast on Twitter and Instagram or at NOMGpodcast.com.